You've heard it. I've heard it. This statement, you need to move the numbers. So what do you do when you really need to execute on strategy that will turn into results for the organization? On this episode, a proven four-step model that will make it happen. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 294. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. I'm so glad you joined in today. If this is your first time listening, you're definitely in for a treat. And if you have listened before, you know that one of the challenges that all of us experience as leaders is how we can not only get the best ideas, but how do we actually execute on those ideas? That is something that comes up again and again in my conversations with clients, with members of our academy. And throughout my career, I've been looking for the best models that really help us not only to find the best ideas, of course, but actually to execute on those ideas. And our guest today is really an expert on this, has developed uh, with his team a fabulous model uh, that I know you're going to benefit from on how to really get things done in your organization, how to execute on those best ideas. And that is Chris McChesney. Chris is the global practice leader of execution for Franklin Covey Company and one of the primary developers of the four disciplines of execution. For more than a decade, he has led Franklin Covey's ongoing design and development of these principles, as well as the consulting organization that has achieved extraordinary growth in many countries around the world and impacted hundreds of organizations. And he is the author of the best-selling book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, with his colleagues, Sean Covey and Jim Hewling. Chris, I'm so glad to meet you, not only because of this model, but I love that you're a, both of us are fans of Carnegie and also Covey's work. And we were just talking about how those, those two classic business books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and also How to Stop Worrying and Start Living are just central in our libraries. Yeah, absolutely. That that was really fun to make this connection, and and you know we both have we both have experiences with these organizations, and geez, what a contribution they've made. So yeah, I, I, we 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 have that in common, and probably a lot more. Indeed, and one of the things that I keep coming back to whenever, I, especially when I think about Covey's classic work and Carnegie's classic work, is how many things we continue to discover maybe for the first time, but actually a lot of the principles, and I know the principles from the four disciplines of execution are actually rooted in time-tested methodology, things that maybe we've known <laughs> for years and years and years, but a lot of times we just struggle to be able to execute on them. And, that, and that's why I'm really glad to talk to you today, because I know you're going to give us a, a framework on that. But one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about before we even get started is, uh, I've heard you say that there are always more good ideas than there is the capacity to execute. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Oh yeah, it's it's really one of our I uh, probably one of our favorite sayings, and it's just a helpful uh, little idea to have in your head because the the way to kill execution. Maybe let's start with that. You know, you want to kill execution on a team or an organization. It's not complicated. Just overgoal the organization, right? By the time you you get to six or seven things that an individual has to think about in addition to daily operation, they might love you. They can't hear you anymore. And so we, we, you know, we've quickly started to realize that you have to be able to say no 
to good ideas, and that's very counterintuitive. I mean, intellectually, when we talk about it, it sounds like, oh, yeah, I can say no to a good idea. But in the moment, if you haven't tried this, you'll be surprised how difficult it is. So that expression, there's always more good ideas than there is capacity to execute, is there to sort of help leaders realize, look, just because it's a good idea, that doesn't mean fire, right? That, that there has to be more criteria than that. Well, and that actually lines up a lot with the experience I've had of even watching organizations do this. Many organizations, executive leadership teams will go through this process of goal setting or strategic thinking, and they'll come out of that. And oftentimes I'll see these documents and I'll talk about strategic priorities. And there's 15 things on the document for strategic priorities for this quarter or this right. year. And it, it, it sort of always strikes me as that too, of like, that, that's a lot to, uh, to tackle in just a short period of time. Well, and the problem is, I, I think one, I think that most leaders are, are really lacking an organizing framework. And I think that's one of the things I'd love to, to, to make sure we hit on this program is a way to sort of organize and get your arms around strategic intent. And it's got a lot of legs and a lot of fingers. But what, if you end up with a giant list of, of, of priorities, what tends to happen is, is the, the crab in a basket idea where one of them is about to make it. And one of the other ones down the list grabs it and pulls it back in the basket. And so you're right. I think what you just described happens over and over again. And it's a natural byproduct of human tendencies. This is, you know, this is typically how we go about doing this stuff. Well, one of the distinctions that you all make in your work is the distinction between goal and concept. And I think even before we get into the framework for this, um, I think that'd be a helpful, that'd be a helpful distinction for us to explore. What, what is the distinction between a goal and a concept? Well, I think the, the first thing to think about around this is this, this first idea that says, you know, execution doesn't like complexity, right? Just sort of let that sink in for a second, right? Because, you know, anybody that you talk to about what they want to accomplish next year and their strategic priorities, right? It, 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 the first thing is it's complicated. And, and you got to know right off the bat that, you know, I actually worked for a popcorn company for a year and they always kept complaining and saying, it's popcorn. How do we make it so complicated? <laughs> right? so everybody, awesome. everybody falls into this trap. So don't feel bad if, right, if your world feels complicated. But the truth is that's not going to execute. And so one of the, one of the sort of the guidelines of the rules and, and is that, all right, when you, when you want to move things out of complexity, you know, it's very difficult to execute on a concept as well. And leaders love to talk about strategy conceptually. And we, we, we have sentences and sometimes paragraphs to describe what it is we want. And that's, that doesn't execute well either. What you, what you want is a specific target. And the first discipline is really all about that. It's all about moving from concept to very specific targets or goals and, and, you know, that, that have three components. They got a starting line, a finish line, and a deadline. And if you can, you know, part of the trick is, can you reduce your strategy, your strategic intent to the fewest number of executable targets at the front line of the organization? Um, that's, that's kind of the end game of the first discipline. So keep it as simple as possible to just the basics. Where are you at? Where are you going? And what's the deadline to get there? Yeah. I noticed one of the words used in your work is intersection. And one of the things I was interested in reading is that one of the terms you all use is the term wildly important goal. And you point to the fact that that's an intersection of what's really important and what's not going to happen. 
and I found that really an interesting concept. I was wondering if maybe you could you could explain that to us. Yeah, well, it started by uh, the, the question didn't start that way. What we for years, what we were asking people is, what component of your strategy requires a significant change in human behavior? And there was something about that question that would just cause people's brains to lock up because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're like, well, what part doesn't require a change in people? What do you mean by change in behavior? And and, and what we're really getting to is there's usually a component of what you're trying to do that's going to be harder to execute than anything else, but it's really important. And that component always requires people to have to do something new or different, or said differently, requires a high degree of human engagement. And so to kind of to get your brains thinking about this, we went back to this question, which is, all right, to, get, to identify that, just think about, you know, in terms of your area of responsibility, what lives, right? What lives at the corner? And you said it perfectly. What lives at the corner is really important. We have to deliver on this. And look, if I'm honest with myself, right? If we keep doing what we're doing, this is not going to happen. And it's like the intersection of those two ideas, there'll be a couple of things that'll go through your mind, not more than a few. And that's really kind of your, you know, or needs to be your execution focal point. And, and it's against that wildly important goal that we really bring this full execution muscle, this methodology. What, what we're going to talk about today is not like something that you use on everything. This is, this is very powerful medicine that you apply to those strategic bottlenecks. I think part of the, the genius here is in the language. So like you said, it if you start talking about what requires behavior change and all those kinds of things, you know, people, you know, people have a hard time kind of putting their heads around that. But when I think about that intersection, I'm, I'm guessing almost everyone listening has already thought of like, what is that thing right now that's really important, but it's not going to happen if we yeah. keep doing things the way we're doing it. Yep. Well, let's, let's go to, let's go to the first discipline then you already articulated it. And, and I'm curious maybe if you could give us some examples of how that sounds, because it's not complicated, but it's, but it's, but it's powerful right. as far as really, really articulating things that way. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could share with us what are a couple of examples of what you've seen organizations do around setting something around that first discipline. Yeah. So the first thing to do, the first thing I want everybody to know is resist the idea to pick some global thing that really is an umbrella for everything else. Right. I mean, we know if you're starting a new business, you, you're going to want EBITDA, right? I mean, we know if you're running a sales organization, you're going to want top line revenue, right? And that, that's, you know, it's, it's really easy to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to put my target on increasing EBITDA from X to Y by when, and I'm done. And, and you're really not done because even though you gave it a finish line, you didn't narrow your focus. So if the thing that you've chosen is your wildly important goal, if you like that, or focal point, if it represents the sum totality of all your work, you haven't narrowed your focus at all. And that's what the first discipline is all about. We call it focus on the wildly important. It's about narrowing the focus. And so what you're looking for is some strategic priority target, right? That thing that lives at the, the intersection of really important and isn't going to happen. That's as narrow as possible and yields the biggest impact. So for instance, if we could get our first year salespeople to break even right at the end of the first year. Wow. What we could do with our whole organization, right? I nice. mean, there's 50 things going on here, but if we could do that, it's a game changer. And what if we put all 
of the muscle marketing and what if we put all those things against getting those first year salespeople to pay for themselves or you know what right now we're at, we've got a great new business engine we're churning we're churning you know 35% of our clients every year and we don't even have a good way to capture that and and you know what if we could reduce client churn from from 35% to 15% this year what's the math on that one it's a specific piece of the equation. And of course, that changes depending on who I'm talking to, right? Depending on your area of responsibility. But that, that tends to be the, the, the starting dialogue. And, and then I would just say, let me add one more thing just to help. When you think of this big list of priorities that you might be looking at, I want you to sort of, first of all, take out everything that can be done with the stroke of a pen. More or less. In other words, right, money, authority, we're going to hire a new, we're going to reduce our number of SKUs. We're gonna, right? It's stuff you can do because you're the boss, because you got money. I mean, yeah, there's some follow-up, and, but pretty much you can do it because you're the boss. Just take all those elements and set them off to the left. And then take all the elements that are life support, right? Critical things that got to be maintained, but improving them doesn't represent a significant financial win. I mean, losing them might hurt you, but these are things that have to be sustained or maintained. There's no huge upside. And move all those off to the right. What's Try. an example of something that's What's like left? a life support thing? Is that, is that kind of the whirlwind normal yeah. daily stuff? So, yeah, exactly. Whirlwind, day-to-day operations. So this is going to, right, this might surprise you a little, but believe it or not, safety in the airline industry. Because if you sat down with an airline group of airline executives and you said, what's the most important thing? They would all say, oh, safety, 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 safety. Well, that's fine. It is. But guess what? It's not in jeopardy. There's no gap to close. There's no change in behavior that's needed. As a matter of fact, we don't want them changing behavior. You, you guys, whatever, whatever you're doing, you keep right on doing it, right? Yeah. So it's this giant part of the, what we call the whirlwind or life support, but it doesn't make for a good candidate to be a wildly important goal. In other words, it's not a good candidate for the treatment we're going to talk about right now. So, so, so safety might be, or, you know, uh, uh, time to market, or, I mean, there's, there could be any number of a dozen matri- metrics that are critical to your operation that maybe are not optimal, right? They're, you're tempted to chase them, but as long as they don't go backwards, or maybe if we get moderate improvement, we'll probably be okay. That's one of the ways you start to let go of this crabs in a basket mentality where everything's competing with everything else is recognize that just because we measure something doesn't mean it has to be a goal for optimization. Oh, nice. Part of this is just getting our minds around what is the thing that we can zero in on that's actually going to move the needle that's going to help the organization be substantially more effective is going to really provide the kind of results we want versus just moving numbers for the sake of moving numbers. Yeah, exactly. And, and there, is, there is a tendency inside of all of us that we, anything we can measure, we think we have to optimize. Uh, and, we can, and, and sometimes we know how to optimize them all. And there's, that's stepping away from good ideas again. Awesome. I love that perspective. And then this probably leads into just how we frame it. And to your comment earlier on, on framework, uh, I, one of the big distinctions you make in the second discipline is uh, the distinction between leading indicators and lagging indicators. Are you familiar with the book, The 12 Week Year? I'm trying to think in what context I've heard of it, but it did ring a bell. But yeah, yeah tell me. 
Well, it's it's a really interesting book. It's it's the it's the concept of rather than planning out an entire year for yourself and even your organization of of planning out a quarter. And one of the um, when I read it last year, one of the big concepts in that book, and maybe they were inspired by you guys, is leading indicators versus lagging indicators. And I don't know, I had never really thought about that much before I read that in the book. But as soon as I read, it, I was like, "Wow, that is profound." And I've been I've been really coaching our academy members to really think that more that way. And so I'm really interested in and in how this developed and and why that distinction is so critical in in the work as far as helping organizations execute. It's probably. It's probably the most valuable component in the methodology, but it's probably one of the most misunderstood as well. Oh, why is that? All right. Well, because it, it has to do with semantics. So if, if this will make more sense in an, if I gave you an example. So let's suppose you had a hotel that wanted to improve guest satisfaction. Okay. And that was their, right. Rather than going after occupancy rate or revenue flow through, they said, it's, get, we're going to aim the disciplines at guest satisfaction. And that guest satisfaction is a lag measure, okay? But that guest satisfaction is a very high-level lag measure. And what you actually need in, in our vernacular, you need to break that down into, and, and by the way, that lag measure is also a wildly important goal. So we use this other little nomenclature that, and this is the only thing I'm going to, if you're listening, this is the only thing I want you to write down. This one expression, what are the fewest battles necessary to win the war? Mm. This is a question that one of the NASA engineers asked during the, the, during the years they were, they were going after the moonshot in the 60s. What, what were the fewest battles necessary to win the war? What were the fewest battles necessary to get to the moon? And NASA came up with navigation, propulsion, and life support right? They didn't think of everything they needed to do to get to the moon. What were the fewest? And so, so let's suppose that this hotel who wants to move guest satisfaction, their fewest battles, let's say, are arrival experience, food and beverage quality, and problem resolution. Okay. So there's a temptation right now to say, ah, those must be leading measures for guest satisfaction, but don't do that. I'm going to, we're going to, their output metrics, we're calling them all lag measures. So if, you th- if you've got a hierarchy, guest satisfaction's on the top. Arrival experience is one of the key battles. Food and beverage quality and, and problem resolution are three battles. And you could say, all right, well, guess what? There's below arrival experience in this giant hotel. This actually comes from the Opryland in Nashville, Tennessee. Below arrival experience, you've got um, speed of check-in. You've got room availability and you've got the luggage delivery time. Those are all goals for individual teams. So I've given you three levels of what you might call lag measures. This is the part that people get confused with. Um, so, so sometimes when you've got a goal, you want to be able to break it down. Lead measures, I'm going to give you two words for what, what makes a lead measure different than everything I've talked about so far. Lead measures are directly influenceable by the team. And they're also predictive of goal outcome. So a lead is something, we don't use the word control. Uh, We don't go quite that strong, but we use the word influence. So for instance, if I wanted to reduce luggage delivery time, one of my lead measures could be what percentage of of the guests do I walk to the room? Because we know if we walk them there, that, that, that really reduces the, luggage, the time for luggage delivery. Or how do I 
do I, do I get the names right? Do I tag a hundred percent of all the bags that come in so they don't get, so they don't get sorted improperly? Like, what am I doing right from a, from a, what, what can I do that's actionable? That's where the lead measures come in. That tends to sometimes be a point of, of confusion. First, we say break the goal down to where the team owns the goal, and then the leading measures are those things that the team can do. And that, as you said, that's the second discipline. And so am I oversimplifying if I use the distinction here of, of inputs versus outputs that the lag indicators tend no, to be? No, that's a great distinction. Is that that's it? a okay. great distinction. So all of those, all of the things, whether it was you know, luggage or, or guest satisfaction or arrival experience, or, but those are all output metrics and, and very good. And lead measures are input. They're, they're, they're things that we're putting into the system. But the reason that that, the reason it was so valuable to break down the goals is because if you just said to everyone, hey, what's a good lead measure for guest satisfaction? Well, anything. There could be a million lead measures and you'd never be able to see a relationship between cause and effect. So in discipline one, get the goal down to a team level, get that output down to something the team can own like 80% of and then look for lead measures. The, uh, and, and, and then if, if this is confusing for anyone, it won't be in two seconds. The most classic lag measure of all is weight loss. And the most classic lead measures of all is diet and exercise, mm. right? Lag is the output. That's what we get. Diet and exercise, that's what we put in. Those are the lead measures. And so, but you want to make sure that you get those lag measures down to something that the teams can individually own. I love that perspective. And you actually got me thinking as you were saying that, because I remember you mentioning then the book of weight loss of just kind of helping us to frame it personally. And we have an academy member who decided he wanted to lose weight. But what he did, he said it only changed one thing in his behavior. He decided that if he wrote down what he was going to eat before he ate it, he didn't, he didn't change exercise. He didn't change like doing anything else. Yep. If he wrote down what he was going to eat before he ate it, that that would be like the thing, the leading indicator that'd be huge for him. And he did that for a few months. And last I heard, he had lost 25 pounds. Um, and that's the only difference he made. And that that's like a perfect illustration of, of the concept that you're talking about here, which is it's a leading indicator rather than worrying about what my weight is today. What, what are the inputs I put in that I know are going to ultimately, ultimately relate to the outcome I want? You got it. That's it. Exactly. Perfect. All right. So, so the key is getting into those leading indicators. How do you, like, I think for a lot of teams and leaders, this is probably, I mean, it makes sense theoretically, but I think that's probably an area that requires a lot of coaching. Like, what do you do to help people to get away from thinking about the lag and get in the focus more on the leading indicators? Well, it's interesting. The, the first thing that we would tell you is you actually, you actually have to get the lag measures right first. Sometimes if there's a mistake people make with this material, it's they sort of assume, oh, well, you know what our goals are. What, what are our lead measures? I mean, we're tracking lots of lag measures. Which, what, what lead measures should we track? We would say, no, don't think of it that way. Really do the discipline around discipline one first to get very focused around that intersection and get it into a target form and get those targets at the team level. When, when you give the bell stand the goal of reducing luggage delivery, or they choose the goal of reducing luggage delivery from, in, you know, in some cases, 102 minutes per guest down to 15 minutes per guest. 
When you have a target that clear at the team level, lead measures become a lot easier. So now what I'm saying is, all right, what can I, what can I measure that's something I can do, that's the influenceable part, and it's going to actually reduce luggage delivery time. Right? When, you, when you frame it like that, lead measures become much more manageable. Now, you notice I used, you noticed I used three little descriptors. One, I got to be able to measure it. Two, it would end, right? it's something I can directly influence. And three, it's going to actually move the needle. It's predictive of that lag measure. So, so those three criteria aimed at a very specific goal is the best way to sort of put yourself in a good position to identify good lead measures. And then the last thing, don't dictate it to the teams. If you're a leader and you've got teams working for you, give, or if you're, you know, let's just say you're a team leader, give them your best thinking, but then let them have a voice. One of the things we've learned is if the team has a voice and they get a say in the lead measures, even if you don't get it exactly right the first time, they'll stay in the game with you. It's like solving a riddle. Right? Don't dictate this. Let them have a voice in what those leads should be. Deming said people within 12 feet of the work understand cause and effect relationships the best. Yeah, it's like the distinction between renting a car versus owning it. If it's if you've got ownership over the idea, you're going to treat it a lot better than if you're just, you know, taking direction from someone else. You want to have them yep. invested and you want to you want the people closest to the work, the ones who are actually taking ownership of here's what we need to do to actually reach the objective. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't mean saying to them, hey, team, what do you think our lead measures should be? Because they're just going to look at you with a blank stare. It's really coming at them and saying, look, we've thought about this. You know, this is the metric we're trying to move. These are the three or four things that we think we could measure that might have the biggest impact. Which of those do you think would actually ring the bell? Or are we missing something? Is there something we're not looking at? And it's this way of sort of jump-starting the conversation with the team to get them involved that has a gigantic impact on the process. So the third discipline is around visible scorecards. And as I was reviewing the visible scorecards and, and hearing you talk about it a bit, I, w- I was thinking that a lot of organizations probably think that they have scorecards. And that's been a, that's been a term that a lot of organizations have used, of course. Um, but part of this is just getting solid on how that fits in with the framework here. And so what's, what's the right way we should be thinking about how to, how to make scorecards and, and make them visible? Yeah. All right. So let me do this. Let's separate all the data you need to run the organization from the kind of scorecards or scoreboards that you would use to run this play. Like this is probably the most valuable thing when it comes to this approach. So all the life support stuff that you need, like, I'm not going to, don't throw away any of your spreadsheets. Okay. You need them all, right? You need, and, and you know, we call that stuff coaches data. Coaches need data and you need data. Keep it all. Just don't confuse it with this. What we say in discipline three is that what, what we're looking for is a compelling scoreboard or scorecard, right? We want to, we want something that's a player's scoreboard, not a coach's scoreboard. And what that means is it's got some different criteria. It's very simple, right? I just see a lag measure and I see a couple of lead measures, right? Um, It's highly visible to the players. I can see immediately if I'm winning or if I'm losing, okay? And it doesn't require a lot of explanation. Like once I understand what it is, I see the game. But in the absence, what we've learned is if you stop at discipline one and two, 
You know, you create your target, you create your lead measures. If you don't get it in the form of a scoreboard, if it doesn't become alive, um, it doesn't go anywhere. And then the last thing I would say on this is people play differently when they're keeping score. If they're not keeping score, it ain't working. And so you can put a lot of energy into it, but basically you want to be able to ask somebody at any given time about one of your lead measures or about your lag measure. And no matter what they're doing, they know what the score is. That's how you know you're getting traction. Oh, nice, nice. So let's take the hotel example you were telling us about a minute ago. What would that scorecard look like? Like if I was to go talk to one of the folks on those te- on that team, what would be some of the lead indicators that they were tracking and how would that show up and how that'd be visible, visible in the organization? All right, so... So we do this in a couple of different ways. So there's a web portal that we have you can, you can sort of sign up for. And we have this online. And, and we had to do that because a lot of the teams were all at different locations. And so that one just has this little indicator for your lag measure that goes red, yellow, green based on the number you put in it. Like it keeps track of where you should be. And, and you put in your number and, it, and it, it, it turns red, yellow, and green. And you can see and you have that for your lag and your leads. And it's just, it's just a very simple dashboard on your, on your screen and, and you can connect different scoreboards together in the organization. And that's one view, but when people are working in proximity, so let's go back to the hotel example. And let's say you've got, uh, you go back to our bell stand, right? They want to reduce luggage delivery and you know, they want to mark 100% of all bags. Uh, you know, they want to identify all bags coming in and they want to walk 50% of the guests to the room. Let's say the two lead measures, which by the way, brought luggage delivery from 106 minutes down to 12 minutes. Oh, wow. they, they crushed that metric. That's awesome. Right? So what do we tell them? We give them the, right? Here's, I'll tell you what we tell them and then I'll tell you what they do. What we tell them is, hey, keep it simple. And, you know, put, put, you know, put a simple graph for, for luggage delivery on the right with a definition on the left and the same for bags marked and the same for guests escorted, okay? And, and, and you know, the, give us a little definition on the left, give us a little graph on the right, lags on top, leads underneath, and we give them this nice, clean little thing. And then what they end up building looks nothing like that. And they got, you know, some people, they've got, some people will attach like wigs, like with your hair, you know, or they've got <laughs> dials or they've got colors or just bizarro stuff that doesn't show up anywhere in our material. We don't tell people to like personalize and do this and inevitably they do. And so it, it's, we have basically the answer is I have no idea what they're going to get back, but the team owns it. It's their thing. And as long as it keeps, as long as it keeps track for them and they know the score, you know, God bless them. But we've been may, amazed at how personalized frontline teams will get with this stuff. And it doesn't look very professional, but we're like, Hey, whose game is it? Right. If they own the game, uh, I'm not going to knock that. So, um, yeah, we, we, we have just, hundreds of crazy pictures of scoreboards that these teams will come up with um, once it's their game. Yeah. yeah. Right? If, it's, if it's your game, not so much. But so, yeah, that's, that's what we tend to see. And, and what we've also noticed is not with the creation of the scoreboard, but at some point in the process, you're going to see a spike in morale and engagement. And that's usually when the lead measure starts to move the lag measure. Nice. We found that there's, this, is, this can be a, an amazing driver of engagement when people feel like they're winning against something that matters. 
two big things I'm hearing is keep it as simple as possible. Like I said, the fewest number of battles yep. you need. And then secondly, give people ownership over it. So it yep. may not be the way you would have created it or it looked, but if they have ownership over it, then they engage with it and it's theirs and they, you know, they, they're going to make it happen. It's exciting. I love it. Yeah, there you go. All right, great. So, so discipline four is about the wig sessions. And I know people sometimes cringe when they hear about having meetings. So let's talk about why this <laughs> is such an important thing as part of the process. Because I, I think disciplines one, two, and three, they, they kind of set it up. But really, the, the actually making it happen is discipline four, right? Yeah, everything. Matter of fact, good way to think about it is disciplines one, two, and three is like creating a winnable game. Like if you get nothing else from this podcast, like that's the thing I would like you to leave, right? Can you take the most challenging aspects of your strategy and translate it into a winnable game? That's what disciplines one, two, and three are, okay? Discipline four is how you play the game, right? So it doesn't do you any good to set up the game if you don't play it. And the way you play it is with a very short, uh, but it is a meeting and it's weekly don't and 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 if you if you're thinking well let we'll do ours biweekly you know what don't even bother because <laughs> it'll be, the, the 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 distractions of the day to day business will kill it you got to go weekly at a minimum and and you want to keep it short less than twenty minutes and all that happens in this meeting there's no small talk you start right on time and you get everybody out you do that it'll be everybody's favorite meeting right you can do it you can do it over the phone if you're at different locations if you have other things to talk about as a team. You know, have a hard stop, do that later or at another time. And in this meeting, each person is thinking about basically one thing, right? And that's what am I going to do this week to impact that leading measure? Okay, we've got a new guy at the bell stand. I'm going to train, I'm going to train Marcus on how we greet guests and kind of the procedure for walking them to the room. Um, I've noticed that that third shift is really down the last two weeks on marking name tags. My commitment is I'm going to, I'm going to meet with third shift and, and, and kind of go over the procedures for, for marking name tags. What am I, what am I going to do this week that that's going to help us with our lead measures for the week? So each person's making a commitment and, and, and I'm guessing too, that's the part of the power of this is it's not just that they're reporting to the boss or his facility to me they're actually, they're, they're having some accountability to each other, right? Yeah, this, this, is, this was an interesting, this was a nice surprise too. People don't like to disappoint their bosses, but they get over it. Um, they'll do almost <laughs> anything. They'll do almost anything not to disappoint a peer group, uh, particularly. Interesting. And we, we, you know, we hear people saying like, I was not going to go in that meeting and not have that commitment done for the week. And so what, what's happening is, is you're putting, you know, you're putting energy against leverage. The lead measures the lever. And you put energy against that every week. And it's a very healthy form of accountability because nobody's giving you that commitment. You make the commitment. It also raises the stakes of the game. Like this is, there, there's two things from a morale standpoint we want you to get your head around. You want to improve morale and engagement, right? It's not about pay. It's not about benefits. It's not about whether you like the boss or whether you have a best friend at work. I mean, all that stuff will influence turnover and if you get some of that stuff wrong, it'll take people off. But engagement it has to be tied to progress and achievement. Right? You, you, you don't believe me? Go back, Google Frederick Hertzberg in the 1960s and look at all the data that was done on that. HBR did a whole big piece on this in 2011. Engagement is about winning. And we didn't realize what we were doing when we started the disciplines. But if you can create a winnable game that matters 
And disciplines one, two, and three is all about creating the winnable game. But discipline four is about communicating that it matters. If you're meeting on this every single week, right, it matters. Um, And it sends a message that, look, you know, we got a lot of things going on here, but nothing is more important than closing this gap, than achieving that wildly important goal. And we'll tell you, the human component of this is very powerful. We, we believe it's the creating a winnable game and giving people the opportunity to experience achievement at work. Not, it doesn't have to be around every aspect of what they do, but around something that they feel matters, has a bigger impact on engagement than anything else you can do. And we, and we, we, we firmly believe that. We, we weren't smart. We were lucky. We observed it before we understood it. Chris, you, you, you hit on something like so central. We keep hearing again and again, uh, and so many guests have come on the show. And I'm, I'm thinking about uh, David Marquet's work you're probably familiar with. Uh, when he was on the show, he, he talked about engagement is really giving people ownership over things. And, if, and everything else is window dressing. You've got to give people ownership yeah. and the ability to, to do things. And it just fits right along with exactly what you're saying. Yeah, he's using different words, but I believe, I absolutely believe he's talking about the same thing, right? And that goes back to whose game is this, right? Yeah. You know, they, they helped set the finish lines on the goal. They, 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 they helped, you know, they're the ones that influenced the lead measures. It's their commitments that they're making. This thing is drenched with ownership from front to back. Not because we think that ownership is somehow more noble than command and control, but it's just the only thing that worked. Right? These disciplines are the byproduct of 2,500 trial and error experiments, right? I mean, it's, this, this thing's been evolving the whole time. And where we've landed is a much heavier form of, of ownership. Now, that doesn't mean, I just want to put one little caveat in there, that doesn't mean that as leaders you abdicate responsibility. I like leaders who are leaders. And we tell leaders, look, you can veto, but don't dictate. So the leader might set the big war where the, where the organization is going, and the, that leadership team might even set the key battles. But then as the other teams start to address it, let them have a say, right? Let them and, – and you can, you, know, you can say no, you can veto, but, but vetoing and dictating are not the same thing, right? You can veto, but give them the opportunity to say no, you know, to go back and try again and own that thing. I love it. I love it. Love the way of thinking about that. All right. So you brought up leadership. And my, my last question for you is around leadership. You know, leaders are always learning from their own mistakes. And you've had a ton of success in your work. You've had a ton of success with this model. Um, but I'm curious about what's the biggest leadership failure you've had? Oh, geez. That's a book. Now, that, that book would have been way easier. That book would have been way easier to write. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff relevant to the content that I could tell you because I don't live this stuff naturally. It's like these disciplines that I'm, I have a slight case of hyperactivity, uh, attention deficit issues. If you can't tell from the, from the podcast, so somebody did a newspaper article on, on the, they called it the Ritalin kid helps organizations focus. And they, they were really proud of themselves. They thought that was really clever. But oh, the truth so is uh, there's so much of this that I struggle with. And so I, in a sense, I need this, but that's not what I'm going to tell you is my biggest leadership failing. I think the biggest mistakes I've made as a leader is I've taken my eye off the fact that, you know, people matter and I get so caught up sometimes in the results that I I lose that. And we don't want you to lose that with this methodology. We want you to see this as a way to help people feel like they're winning on something that matters a lot and not just become obsessed with the output alone. 
Chris, I really appreciate you saying that. I think like you, I've certainly struggled with that too. And I know a lot of folks in our audience have. And uh, one of the reasons I reached out to you originally is we had a number of Academy members who are using this model and I found it to be extraordinarily helpful. So I'd certainly encourage that uh, for you as well. If you're listening and, and hearing uh, the power in what Chris is saying around these four disciplines, I hope you'll pick up the book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, and add it to your leadership library. I think it's um, it's it's the thing that it, it's it, it, it's so it's simple and it's 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 not easy necessarily but it's simple and it and right. it's really something right. that we can get our, our arms around i know it's going to be really valuable to folks chris so uh so thanks a ton for really uh, providing uh, a ton of uh, wisdom here i know it's going to be uh, something we can all execute on right away hey honored to be on the show thanks so much for thinking of us chris mcchesney is the global practice leader of execution for franklin covey and the author of the four disciplines of execution thanks again chris thanks so much Thank you, Chris, for helping us out with this model. Uh, So much here that we can all utilize to get the results that we need in our organizations. Uh, So many times this model has come up in academy conversations in the past few months. I certainly encourage you to pick up the book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, if you found today's conversation helpful. As always, all the notes, links we mentioned uh, will be on the show notes. And of course, in this week's weekly leadership guide, if you're not already getting the weekly leadership guide, the very best way to get access to it is to go over to coachingforleaders.com, activate your free membership on the website. When you do, you're going to get access to a whole bunch of things, including the Wednesday Weekly Leadership Guide, which has an overview of the week's episode from me, as well as a number of other leadership resources that I think will be helpful to you. In addition, you'll get access to the full podcast library for the last six years of the show that's searchable by topic, and you'll get instant access to my 10-day free audio course, That's titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It is a 10-minute, a day or less lesson on how to be more effective at getting the best immediate practical results to lead more effectively. All of that you get access to at coachingforleaders.com. Just set up your free membership and that will get you started on that and much more that's in the membership dashboard there. Thanks for everyone who has uh, completed uh, that. Uh, We have thousands, almost 4,000 members that are on the free membership now. Thank you so much for those of you who have uh, connected with that. It's uh, so great to get to interact with you more and uh, be talking with you more each week. And when you're online, I also hope that you will check out some of the related episodes to today's conversation. Uh, Speaking of that back catalog, it's a bunch of uh, conversations that will align well if you found today's conversation helpful. Uh, First one is episode number 117, The Seven Steps You Follow to Delegate Work. Uh, We talked just a touch about delegation in this episode. That's also, of course, a critical skill set for so many leaders when uh, thinking about execution and strategy. And it's something that I find that so many leaders struggle with of having a really good delegation process and knowing exactly what to do and what steps to follow in order to delegate work. Uh, Episode 117 walks you through seven steps that I think are going to be the ones that will be most valuable to you. Check that out if that's important to you. Also, check out episode 207, How to Transform Your Limitations into Advantages. I had Mark Barden on the show a while back. He's the author of the book, A Beautiful Constraint. One of the challenges that I find uh, that come from leaders a lot when they're in the situation where they need to move on something and need to produce results is they say, well, we don't have the resources. We don't have the budget. And we've all been in that situation where we've got limited resources. And one of the things Mark talked about in that episode is what you can do 
that really works in the midst of not having a lot of resources. In fact, he makes the case a pretty profound way that having fewer resources actually works to your advantage and helps you to be more creative, helps you to innovate more. And if you're if you're in that situation, episode 207 is absolutely a listen for you. And then uh, finally, we talked about David Marquet briefly on this conversation. Also, check out the full interview with David Marquet, episode 241, How to Turn Followers into Leaders. If you are looking for inspiration on the language that you can use in order to really get ownership and engagement in your organization, I know of no leader that is better at creating the right kind of language and coaching leaders on how to do that than David Marquet and creating ownership in your organization. Check that out, episode 241. All of those episodes, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number that'll get you right there. And next week, Bonnie and I return for the monthly Q&A show. Believe it or not, it is the top of the month coming up again next week. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for next week's show or for the first Q&A show of every month, uh, the first Monday of the month we are at, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Submit your question. We would love to consider it. Have a fabulous week and I'll see you next Monday back with Bonnie. Take care.